This is Tony. And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. What's going on, Matt? Uh, not too much. I think I always say that. <laughs> yeah, we, I think we should, uh, yeah, we'll work, we'll, we'll fix it in post. <laughs> <laughs> um, busy, a lot of work. Yeah. A lot of photography. Mm-hmm. You? That's right. You're a photographer. I am. I don't think we've ever talked about ourselves. We have. We've mentioned it. We've mentioned that I was a photographer. Yeah. Well, because occasionally I'll talk about um, experiences as a photographer or, or a wedding photographer and how that kind of relates to... How you think about film when you're watching it. Well, and... well, how people react to things because I get all these different oh, yep. um, reactions or... Because I talk about pop culture <laughs> all the time. Mm-hmm. Not just here, and so it's interesting to get these different uh, types of people uh, from all different uh, backgrounds and ethnicities, and and getting their reactions to my bad pop culture riffing, I guess. So we've talked about that. I don't know if we've talked about about what you do on this podcast. Yeah, I'm an amateur mad scientist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Robin Graves. Yeah. Stitching yeah. together Frankensteins in my garage. Yeah. Uh, I love your Jacob's Ladder. It's great. Oh, thank you very much. With the For our listeners, the Jacob's Ladder is like the two antenna with the, the electricity that's going back and forth between it. Um, Tony has a real nice one. Mm-hmm. Did I ever tell you that I made one? A Jacob's Ladder? Yeah. For a uh, for, um, science project. Oh, For cool. school. My dad is an electrical engineer, and he's like, we should make a Jacob's Ladder. I was like, yeah, you should, Dad. And then so we made it together. I just did quotes around Mm -hmm. together. That's good radio. It is good radio. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It is cool, and it worked, and I think I did a shitty job on presenting it, but because it was a fucking Jacob's Ladder, I got an A because everyone's like, look, it's a Jacob's Ladder. (laughs) It's really cool. I don't think I ever did any cool science projects. Yeah, I think I did like the the requisite. Did you um, do a volcano? I did a volcano. Yeah, okay. yeah, cool. yeah. All right. Um, that's about it. Oh, I think in <clears throat> in high school I did a spectacularly shitty science project. I um, I <laughs> I don't even I don't remember what the assignment was. I just remember that I got like um, you know, a tin can. I filled it with soda. And I put a chicken bone in it and I just covered it with saran wrap and I just left it in my basement for a month. And every week I would check in and see if anything happened. And just got like, there's like a gross like film, but there was no sign. I like, I wasn't interested. I just thought maybe uh, it would sound like I had a plan and mm-hmm. I would kind of uh, bullshit my way through an explanation at the end. Yeah. That's what I learned from art school is if I was struggling with the assignment or it didn't come out the way I thought it would, if I could bullshit my way through it, and sound eloquent when I was explaining my project, then I could get a good grade. Uh, but I did, I took um, a sculpting class once and it was like 3D sculpture. So it wasn't just like, you know, clay or anything like that. It was like taking things, um, any kind of found thing or it, it ran the gamut, uh, really. And so <laughs> one of my favorite assignments or. It wasn't one of my favorite assignments. It was one of my least favorite assignments. But one of my favorite projects, as it turns out, was we had to build a standing structure 
And she made, our teacher made it a competition. So it had to be, what was the highest structure and what could support the most weight? And uh, at the time I was working at uh, Newport Creamery, which is uh, for our listeners that are outside of Rhode Island, it's kind of like friendlies. Mm-hmm. And the night before I was scrambling to to get this thing made and I took all these empty five gallon containers of ice cream and I just barely rinsed them out. So they, they were starting to smell pretty rancid because <laughs> they were baking in my car and I duct taped them all together <laughs> and I had several tiers of it. And my teacher was so pissed because she knew I half-assed it, but mine supported the most weight. <laughs> she was so angry because I, I won, essentially. Um, yeah. Art school. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> I got called out on badly bullshitting my English midterm my senior year, which I failed. It was a fr- I think the, it was the first time I failed like a major paper or project in high school. And... Um, my teacher knew I was, my plan was to go to college to be an English major. And she was like, two things. Like, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> and I know you can bullshit better than this. So uh, don't, don't pull this again. <laughs> she was basically like, if you're not going to read the material, like at least have the dignity of covering your tracks better than this which was great and yeah. i learned that lesson and i've been doing an excellent job of covering my tracks ever since <laughs> i had this one class um uh, in RISD that was two-dimensional design so it was mostly just um design related aspects to kind of drawing and painting and et cetera, et cetera. and then we had to do this one that was about showing like like three-dimensional space and i did it it wasn't as abstract as the teacher wanted because mine looked like a city, uh, but I like had like like these receding clouds that went back to frame the city, and it just happened to be the day that the person in charge of the program was in the class to monitor our teacher, and my teacher was pushing back against my description of it because I was defending it, like I was I was going to war on this, <laughs> and the in the the head of the department was just agreeing with me the whole time, but the teacher was not. And I was like, uh, they're here to evaluate you, not me. It was really funny. What was the aftermath of that? I got a B plus in the class, I think. Oh, that works. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I got A's in all the other classes, so fuck that teacher. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Sorry. Looking down your nose at a B plus. Yeah. No, it was fine. Yeah. B plus is good. Yeah. So a weird thing happened this morning. I, um... For several weeks now, I've been getting on Facebook these targeted ads um, specifically for VeggieTales and a cartoon called Bible Man and, and like a like a, a Christian like children's edutainment streaming platform. What have you been talking about that your phone has been listening into you to get these recommendations? I don't know. I mean, I, I've also... You know, in the past, I've gotten things like targeted NRA ads or even like... Really? Like, um, uh, not as recently, but within the last few months, um, uh, ads from the Trump 2020 campaign. And the only thing I can think is that... um, Didn't you recently just tweet reply to Trump, like, fuck you or something like that? I I think that... um, I think the algorithm is not um, designed to parse out 
uh, irony or um, <laughs> or just or just blind rage <laughs> because the only thing I can think is I have one friend who I really like who will 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 talk and gripe about politics a lot through um, through Gmail's chat feature and and we've been we've been complaining a lot about the current state of things so it's why I know right <laughs> so it, it's clearly just um, glomming onto keywords without context. And it's like, wow, this guy talks about the president a lot. <laughs> but I don't, but the VeggieTales thing is weird. That is really weird. So I um, yeah, yeah, there's a the drop down on Facebook and it says, why am I seeing this ad? So I was click I clicked into that and it shows all the categories and sort of the things that you've liked historically. And I'm scrolling through and <laughs> I didn't get to the bottom of why I was getting all these VeggieTales ads, but I did notice that the Facebook algorithm has specifically flagged my interest in Batman Forever. <laughs> not not Batman in general, not Batman movies, but that specific Batman. Is that your favorite Batman movie? No. <laughs> I and I don't Yeah, I can't I can't for the life of me figure it out. I know things about myself. I know that the reason that um the words one and force are capitalized proper nouns in my phones like, uh, like the one yeah exactly because i talk about the matrix and star wars a lot my phone auto corrects those to proper nouns okay um, fair enough but i you know it's I, I can't remember the last time i i got into it about tommy lee jones's performances to face with anybody where he was like actively mad at jim carrey mm-hmm. on the set calling him like what, what's oh it's the greatest line I cannot sanction this buffoonery yeah yeah oh it's so good um so yeah I couldn't I couldn't figure it out for the life of me um I didn't try it very hard because I had to get here but uh it is an interesting segue into today's topic because uh uh Batman forever and certainly the the Tim Burton Batman movies are drenched with the these sort of echoes of uh German expressionism that can be traced all the way back to today's topic, which is the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah. A silent film from 1920. Yes. This movie will be 100 years old next year. Yeah, that's... I, I sort of um, had that moment of realization as I was about to press play and, you know, the year of release is there and then doing the research and looking at... I mean, the director and the writers were all born in the 1870s. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is... Uh, is this the oldest piece of pop culture we've discussed? When did when we, was uh, Wizard of Oz published? Early 1900, around then, I think. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah. Certainly the oldest film we've discussed. Definitely so far. the oldest film we've discussed so far. Yeah, yeah. What's your history with silent films? Do you, have you seen a bunch of silent films or? Yeah, it's very sparse. You know, I've seen a handful of Chaplin movies. Yeah, uh, Gold Rush, Modern Times. When that Scorsese movie Hugo came out, uh-huh. uh, my wife and I watched that, um, and a, a large part of the plot revolves around George Millier, who is a you know yep. pioneering silent film director. So we l- looked up a bunch of his movies on YouTube, which was great because um, uh, silent film really lends itself to a lot of remixing. So uh, several of the the versions of these movies that we found were uh, colorized. Some had very modern, uh, kind of ambient and electronic scores. Yeah, it, it's really 
and even even with Caligari, uh, I watched it on Amazon Prime. Same. And there was a a much shorter version of it. I think it was maybe half an hour shorter with a you know a, a modern sound effects track and electronic score. I tried watching a few minutes of it. It's really not, so not good. it's not great. They also overdub the dialogue. Oh, really? Um in ways that are really off-putting. Huh. Just I mean the it doesn't lend itself to that necessarily. Yeah. And on yeah. top of the the performances weren't that great. But um it is interesting the way that these things seem to get reinterpreted every so often. For sure. Yeah. Um and uh but prior to Watching this, I really only knew the title. I I knew nothing about it. Um, I was familiar with the imagery. F- you know, it turns out through um, a Rob Zombie music video. <laughs> um, I had forgotten about that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I mean, it's it's not even like a, a sort of nod. It's a very um, obvious reference. I mean, the the sets, the props, the way he's dressed. Uh, yeah. It's all clearly a Caligari music video. Um, but yeah, I really only knew that it was this influential movie that a lot of people, Rob Zombie certainly, uh, Tim Burton, um, o- always point to as a, a reference point, but I had never sought it out prior to this. How about how about you? What's your, your what's your background with silent films and, and Caligari specifically? I've watched a decent amount of silent films, but it, it spanned a good 20 or so years. And so... Obviously, there's a lot of blind spots there. I have watched a lot of Chaplin. I've watched all of his big ones, all the major ones, Modern Times, Gold Rush, uh, The Kid. And I've watched a lot of Buster Keaton movies, uh, which are are great. And then a few scattered things here and there. Um, They're not always easy to come by. Uh, You have to really seek them out, I think. And with Caligari, it's funny, I think... In the Hasalon days of getting DVDs from Netflix, I had gotten Caligari and it had sat on my counter for I don't know how many weeks until I was finally like, I should probably return this. I haven't watched it. Um, And I don't know why I didn't watch it. It's short. It's only like a little over an hour. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was considered and is still considered to be one of the first horror movies. Uh, So it was right up my alley. Uh, and and something that I should have watched probably. This is probably a good 10 or so years ago. Um, and so for whatever reason, I just never got around to it and I returned it. Uh, but it's always been one of those things like, I have to watch this. I have to watch this. I've seen so many horror movies and important horror movies and movies, uh, horror movies that are influential. So this is a big blind spot for me. Uh, so I was excited to finally like I think that's why I pitched it to you. I was like, Caligari. We did uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was a big blind spot for you. Uh, and so I kind of felt like, well, what's a good blind spot horror movie for me? And it was uh, this is the obvious um, answer. Yeah, I mean, it checks a few boxes for us. It's uh, something neither of us have seen. It works with the theme of doing horror-themed episodes this month. Um, and we haven't done a silent film yet. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll cop to being a little wary going into it. There is um, there is a barrier of entry with silent film. I do think that an older film in general, uh, that you do have to sort of be in the right 
headspace to sort of get on its wavelength. Um, the, the, the methods of telling stories has changed so much in the hundred years since this movie was released. Um, that, uh, yeah, there is a, a sort of, uh, I guess a bias that comes with distance from, from when it was made. Do you find that when you're watching older films or silent films in particular? I don't know. Not, not in particular. And I don't know if that's just because I've, I've trained myself maybe. Maybe when I started watching a lot of older movies, it was, there was like a, an entry point that was hard to kind of, to, to access maybe. But now I kind of crave it, like mm-hmm. especially movies from the 30s. Um, that's kind of a weird go-to comfort food for me now. I don't know. There's something about its aesthetic and approach and rhythm that I just, I really love right now. Mm-hmm. And that could change. Um, silent films maybe are a little trickier sometimes because they are a little, their pacing is different. Yeah, it is. I use the word lightly, but they can be challenging to watch. Sure. Um, not challenging in the way that we've sort of talked about challenging works previously. But um, yeah, I, I think it's easy to sort of get distracted or, or tune out if yeah. you're not uh, sure. You know, ready to to put in the the work there. I think that's maybe why Chaplin works so well is because his movies don't feel that way. They're filled with incident and gags, and uh, they move at a pretty pretty good pace and there's not a lot of those you know dialogue um on screen because he was he favored just the less the better when it came to like those kind of titles where he'd explain things or have characters speak um he'd always felt that that was unnecessary uh it's funny uh, i read um a book by david mamet uh about directing and he said that acting um, was never better than it was in the silent era (laughs) because he believes that the actor's job is just do what's on the page, almost verbatim. Like if it says do this, do this. Don't overcomplicate it. So he felt that that's why silent films were superior because it's just showing these people doing these actions. And when it came time for people to emote, they started overdoing it. Now, I don't know if I agree with him with that, but what's interesting about a lot of silent films is There'll be sections where characters are interacting and talking to each other for like a good 30 seconds or so without any explanation of what they're saying. So you're just kind of left to your own devices of what's going on in that kind of moment. And then sometimes they'll be talking for a while and then it'll be like three lines of dialogue that pop up on the screen, um, which is kind of, I don't know, I find that kind of charming now. It's fun. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that when I was younger, I don't ever remember being turned off by old animation. Same. I, I could oh, watch, yeah. I, you know, I loved old uh, Warner Brothers and old Disney cartoons. You know, this struck me when I watched those Chaplin movies I mentioned that his his movement really uh, informed animation. And then watching Caligari, the, the, the set dressing, I mean, uh, it may as well have been an animated film. And oh, yeah. sort of... I think that was a key to me sort of getting on that silent movie wavelength is that they're operating strictly on on visuals and, and the things that I liked about animation are the things that are being applied here. That's sort of um, that lack of any interest in, in photorealism 
they're creating an imagined space. Yeah. Whether that means what the characters look like or the really extreme backgrounds and sets. Um, In particular in, in this, I don't remember coming away from Chapel movies and so much feeling that, but this, uh, I mean, there, there is nothing but artificiality on screen in Caligari and it's gorgeous and it's so effective. Yeah. It's interesting because it's all static shots. Camera never moves. Um, and everything is really flat looking. And normally when I think you'd say that in relation to a movie, you'd probably use that as a dismissive term, but not with this because it's almost like an optical illusion. Right. It's the illusion of depth. Yeah. And the shadows are painted on. And oftentimes the shadows are pointing to things. They're pointing to characters as they're walking through. Windows are are like triangles and they're at odd angles. Mm -hmm. Door frames are slightly slanted. Mountains look like teeth. There's so many triangle compositions, uh, especially because this is in, um, you know, um, one, three, three aspect ratio. It's essentially a box. And so they use that triangle a lot of times to kind of guide your eye around the frame. So if there's a lot of people in the frame, it's usually framed so they're on the bottom third and there's the character you're supposed to look at is in the upper third and it's like a nice big triangle kind of thing to guide your eye around the whole frame. And it's really effective. And a lot of these visuals are kind of representative of what the characters are experiencing, which I found really fascinating because oftentimes when people talk about anything that predates Citizen Kane, they talk about it in terms of, you know, there's a literalism there. And that Citizen Kane kind of brought this sort of metaphor to film. But I found this whole thing to be pretty pretty dense with that, especially in terms of its visuals, mm-hmm. uh, which, as you stated, they're not real at all in the slightest. Um, everything is, is, is artificial and artificial looking. Uh, and it's all about the character psyches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's let's talk a bit about the the plot, which is fairly simple, but it's important, especially in discussing how the visuals represent yeah. that uh, that atmosphere and, and that uh, mental state. Yeah. So um, it's simple, but it's wacky. It is. Yeah. So you know, it's not only considered the first true horror movie, but the first twist ending. Movie yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways. So. Um, uh, there is a framing device here. The movie opens with uh, two gentlemen sitting on a bench in a park. One of them is uh, Francis, who is our narrator. Mm-hmm. And uh, a woman walks by and he, he talks about how this is his fiance and that something you know terrible has happened. They, they've gone through this this traumatic event and he, he flashes back to... Yeah. Uh, Before we flash back, I just want to briefly talk about that f- shot because I, I, I find it so unnerving. Because as this woman walks towards the frame, there are these kind of branches that are in front of her, but it almost looks as if like there's a crack in the screen. It's really creepy, and because she moves almost like a ghost. Mm-hmm. Couple that with the the texture uh, of the the film grain, and you know the technology of its time, and it's very spooky. Yeah. So it flashes back to uh, the village that they all lived in. Um... A, a like a fair or, or a carnival was was in town. Doctor Caligari was one of the sort of carnival barkers, and he has a a somnambulist sleepwalker. Yeah, yeah. 
guy who's been effectively in a coma for a very long time and that he... Yes. Um, they say he slept for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Caesar mm-hmm. is his name. Uh, and his sort of carnival trick is that uh, Caesar will sort of awaken and walk out and tell your fortune. And he tells uh, Francis's friend Alan that he will be dead by dawn. And then Alan dies. Yeah. And then it's revealed that Caligari and Caesar are connected to these mysterious deaths. Yeah, so they start investigating uh, Caligari. Mm -hmm. And in the process, someone else turns up dead. And they catch the murderer. So they kind of let Caligari go. And it's really strange because they're talking to this murderer and he's like, well... I did intend to murder this woman that I murdered, but I didn't. I'm not responsible for the two other murders that has happened before me. Uh, so it's almost like this weird sort of like sidestep to get us away from Caligari in that moment. Mm-hmm. But then essentially what happens is like Caligari will use Caesar to kind of murder these people. Like a hypnotist, he kind of sends him off into the night. When he kills Alan, it's great because it's just the shot of their shadows of him approaching him with a knife. Yeah. It's really expressive. Super dramatic. Yeah. And it's got like these crazy squiggly kind of like dark lines that are painted on the wall. It is. It's almost like a painting, mm-hmm. like a, like an, an expressionist painting. Yeah. So then Caligari sends Caesar after Jane. Francis's fiance. Yeah. And then when he captures her, he goes to take her back to Caligari. Yeah, it, it's like he, he goes to kill her and then hesitates. Yeah. And instead of killing her, seems to carry her off. They chase after them. He kind of leaves her on the side of the road, and then Caesar goes off and just dies. Yeah, like falls off a mountain or yeah. something. Yeah, and then they bring uh, Jane back. They're kind of under the impression that that couldn't have been Caesar because uh, they've been watching him. But then they discover that it's just like a fake body. Yeah, it's a dummy. They They hysterically like pick it up and it's just like hold it hold this quote-unquote person up over their head and then drop it yeah <laughs> uh and then they chase after caligari and they chase him into an insane asylum turns out he's the director of the insane asylum mm-hmm. it's really wacky because they show up to the asylum and they're just like well we're looking for this guy his name is caligari and they're like well we don't know anyone here by that name but our director can fill you in on any of the inmates and so they, they take him to the director and it's dun, dun, dun. It's Dr. Caligari. Um, so then they start doing research into him to find out, I guess, more about his history. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of excerpts and texts from the, his Caligari's books. And it was hard to read a lot of the text. It was, it was a little difficult. Yeah. And that, I think that's just because it's aged so much. And I think the version we watched um, is maybe not the... No, because I know they did a a really nice restoration of yeah, it. Yeah, it was like a 4K ago. restoration that I think Kino Lorber put out. Um, so I, I'd actually kind of interested to see that version to see how much more I can actually see because mm-hmm. there's so much to look at in this. Um, but so I, you know, I wanted to make sure I kind of understood all that. So I kind of did some research uh, to make sure. So as they're reading Caligari's records and diary, um, they find out that. He was obsessed with a, a an 18th century mystic named Caligari, uh, who also used a, a somnambulist um, named Caesar to murder people. And um, in order to understand it, he decided that he would also do the same exact thing. Uh, and there's this like really crazy moment where it's like 
you see him frantic, and then it has the text across the screen that says, I must become Caligari. It's so strange and unnerving. And then so once they kind of discover all this, they kind of and realize he was the one responsible for all these murders. They arrest him, and then they, they put him in a straitjacket, and they put him into the in- asylum himself. And then it goes to the bookend of the framing device um, of the two men talking in the courtyard. We find out that Francis was actually in an insane asylum the whole time, and that his director is someone that he believes is Caligari, but is actually just the director of the asylum. Right. It's a very like, it's sort of like the the horror version of the ending of The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Where, yeah. you know, she 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 looks around and she's like, oh, I had this wonderful dream and all of you were in it. And But instead we're getting uh, this, this patient at this asylum who is convinced that his doctor is this, this hypnotist who's been murdering people. And is sort of the, the, the cause of his madness. Yeah. And his uh, his fiance is there and she's just... She's catatonic. She, yeah. She's just someone that's part of the asylum. Caesar is there. Anyway, so all the participants, all the characters in the movie are all just people that are part of the asylum. So you just discover that he is in this insane asylum and he's insane. And it's all just this fabrication that's in his brain. Um, what did What did you make of this, this twist? Did you like it? Yes. <laughs> I don't know what to make of it, to be honest. I I can imagine that a, the better movie is the one without the framing device. Right, because there, there is some discrepancy as to whether or not the the two screenwriters, yeah. um, Carl Mayer and Hans Janowitz, if, if they had originally intended to have that framing device, there's some speculation that you know other producers or directors had sort of mandated it or suggested it and put it on after the fact. Uh, I couldn't really find a clear account one way or the other. Everything I've read about this movie, there is no clear account. Everyone has different stories about its intention and about mm-hmm. how it's how it was made. So it, again, it's one of those kind of apocryphal stories where it's hard to, to, to discern what the reality is. Right. Well, it's one of those things where, you know, with this framing device that the narrator is is actually insane. You know, you can read into it a couple of ways. One is that it um, it justifies the artificiality of, of the the production design. It's all so exaggerated and sort of uh, almost a, a figment of of a madman's imagination. So it all kind of ties it together. But it doesn't need to necessarily be justified either. That could it could yeah. just very well that that was the the decision and the the choice to explore that style sure. for the film. But the only thing that kind of goes against that a little is that the asylum itself in the framing device is also is also that, kind of in that same looking. style. Yeah. yeah. Especially like that last scene where it shows like the courtyard almost and it's this weird black and white triangle pattern that kind of goes around in a circle and it it looks like a like almost like one of those mind puzzles where it looks like they're walking on like a flat surface mm-hmm. and that the king or the camera's at a weird angle. It's really cool. It's really startling. Um, so that that kind of goes against like that. Maybe if that was more in the real world, I, I would kind of buy that. I, right. I don't know. Um, I think it's it's interesting, if, uh, but I I'm uncertain of it. I think I think that last image of Caligari in the straight jacket is probably more effective. Mm-hmm. But I do, like I said, I love that image of Jane in the opening of the movie walking towards the camera and she's like a ghost. Mm -hmm. 
the fr- and the you know the framing narrative kind of undercuts some of the ideas that are at play. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody involved with this was in one way or another affected by World War One. Um, the two screenwriters were um, they were pacifists. So a lot of themes at work here are you know the the idea of hypnosis and you know mind control and and manipulating people into murdering other people. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of themes of dictatorship and and yeah. and abuse of power and um, manipulation. You know, certainly a through line that follows through German history and the, the yeah. decades following this. They said that they set out to write a story denouncing arbitrary authority as brutal and insane or authoritative power of an inhumane state, um, which obviously points to the the rise of Hitler. Um, cause World War Two is around the corner. Um, yeah. And the director fled. Germany shortly after the the rise of the the Nazi party. And again, like going back to not knowing the true history of the story, a lot of people said that, oh, that wasn't the intention whatsoever. You know, it could be one of those things where it's just like not convenient. Obviously, that's there's not a convenience in 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 predicting the Nazi party. But, you know, you're infusing your stories with these ideas and, and your beliefs without maybe having that intentionality from the offset but maybe they they blossom or or you see them in your work as the greater the distance you have from your work sure it's it's easy for us in hindsight to to sort of uh, you know um assign meaning to a lot of this stuff but there you you can't deny that whether deliberately or subconsciously i mean world war one was a an especially harrowing experience for europe so i mean I mean, these these themes and these reactions and this, this visceral sort of horror at what had unfolded was it's, it's easy to sort of connect those dots. Oh, yeah, for sure. I wanted to read this little um, piece uh, from Roger Ebert's review of the movie, which I thought was was pretty succinct. Um, but he said, I don't believe the films cause Nazism in Germany and whether they predicted it depends on a great deal on hindsight. What is certain is that the expressionist horror films created the most durable and bulletproof of genres. No other genre has box office appeal all by itself, although film noir, also deeply influenced by expressionism, comes close. All a horror film need promise is horror. The unspeakable, the terrifying, the merciless, the lurching, monstrous figure of destruction. It needs no stars, only basic production values, just the ability to promise horror. And we've been talking about horror all month. Um, And I thought that was like a beautiful kind of summation of the genre in itself. And I think this movie does that really, really well. Um, These images are unnerving. And we haven't really talked about Caligari himself and how he looks. And it's really great because it's an older man, maybe a little heavy set with his long hair slicked back. But you could almost see the distinction in his hair, the way it's slicked back. It's strange. It's like almost like these heavy ink drawings mm-hmm. where you could see the lines in his hair. Yeah, uh, my my, you know, as soon as he came on screen, I was like, oh, that's Tim Burton's Penguin. Yeah, that, he's the Babadook. Exactly. Yeah, I was like, oh, I think you owe these people some money, Tim Burton, because <laughs> it feels like his whole career is built off of this movie. Like if he. If you're listening to this and you've never heard of Caligari or have never seen any imagery from it, like you could just think of some of those early Burton movies and the expressionism that in the Art Deco kind of 
sets that he made and the artificiality that he kind of heightens. Because there's nothing real about Burton's movies no. whatsoever. Right. Especially those early ones. And if you think about the castle that um, Edward Scissorhands lives in with how kind of you know flat it looks and the way it's lit um, and the way you can see if there's wood, you can see it's almost like these really broad, expressive lines to define that it's wood. And even going back to his early shorts with Frank and Weenie and... Um, Vincent? Vincent, especially Vincent, which feels just like this. It feels like... His whole career is built off of this. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, between the obvious reference points to German Expressionism, he also came from an animation background. And he was translating that that exaggerated artificiality that you use in animation to get those concepts across in his earlier films, more so than he has been now. Yeah. I think it was it was uh, the Dissolve did a review of that 4K restoration. I think, it, I don't know if it was Noel Murray or... or uh, Keith Phipps, but either way, one of them in the introduction says, even if you haven't seen The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you've seen it. And they point to all these, re- you know, as you said, these these other, uh, these works that have followed it that, that owe so much to, uh, that owe so much to its production design. All the characters, too, have like these distinctive kind of painterly kind of quality to them. Their faces are just almost like, like it's like a caked on kind of white texture to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Caesar has like these almost like thick eyeliner, like black under his eyes. Yeah, to really emphasize the the the, the bags under yeah. under his eyes. You know, he's just like has these sunken in eyes. He's been sleeping for decades. Or yeah. I mean, all of them. And you know, this is not uh, necessarily unique to this silent film, but the exaggerated makeup to sort of compensate for the detail you're losing because their faces are very blown out or. There's one shot uh, during the carnival where Caligari's addressing the crowd and it cuts the crowd and you lose all distinction. It's just it's almost like uh, all the men's suits just sort of bleed together. So all you can really see clearly are the whites of their shirts and their faces and then the details painted on around their eyes and their lips. So you're it's almost like you're seeing a wall of just almost ghostly faces yeah. in, a, in a back background. I think that also points to something that I cherish about older things is when you stumble upon something that's older that could only come about due to the restrictions and the limitations of the technology and how you look back on that and it almost seems purposeful and we couldn't really get something like that now especially with you know 8k cameras you'd have to almost fudge it in order to do something like that but the appeal of seeing something that's feels otherworldly or different. We talked about at the beginning that I'm a photographer and I own a lot of Polaroid cameras. And, you know, a lot of my work is with, you know, high-end digital cameras that have high resolution. But there's something about taking a Polaroid picture and seeing the, you know, all these... The imperfections. Yeah. We kind of lose that sometimes with this search for this ineffable perfection. What's interesting and kind of disappointing is that the further along technology moves, the less expectation or willingness there seems to be for a suspension of disbelief. So right now, uh, as we're recording this, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman has made its premiere. Trailers have been online for a couple months now. And the big thing everyone's talking about is the de-aging technology at work here. So Robert De Niro is able to play himself over a span of decades. Cut to the 70s. 
Robert De Niro is playing a younger Marlon Brando in The Godfather. And it doesn't matter that they don't have the same bone structure or that their faces don't track and that that evolution and progression of a character aging doesn't line up with the reality because there is a suspension of disbelief at work. You just, okay, he's playing that character, but younger. And now they're like, they're abandoning that. They're yeah. in 2019. There is no world where Martin Scorsese makes the Irishman with De Niro playing his age appropriate self and another actor playing that character in the younger scenes. Going back to Caligari, there is no, um, I don't know, it's just because it's so young and it's also new that there aren't those rules in place. And basically the audience is, uh, they have no choice but to go along with the the sort of rules of play that the, the filmmakers are putting out for them. You know, it doesn't have to, this setting doesn't need to make tangible physical sense. This is what we're putting up here. This is the, this is the world we're playing in. Yeah. And we're just inviting you to to watch it and to interpret it the way you, you want to. I can't imagine I mean I mean were, were people looking down at the the clear artificiality of this village or of the mount, the, the the sort of zigzagged mountain path. No. You know what I mean? Like it's just uh yeah. it is what it is and and you take it at face value. I think this idea too that you know with modern technology we've solved this problem and things are now more realistic is is absolutely false because when you watch the Avengers and you see the Hulk, you don't instinctively say that looks real. You buy the premise because they're saying this is what we're selling you. Mm-hmm. This is the Hulk, and this is how the Hulk looks. But and, even within that, there's the 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 lack of of willingness to go that extra step. Like, okay, fine, we're gonna have a God of Thunder. We're gonna have a man who turns into a giant ten foot green monster. But beyond that, it's gotta be real. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think that's part of the problem, too, is because everything kind of looks like digital mud. And so everything sort of we have these different genres mashing up against each other, whether it's high fantasy, science fiction and horror elements with all these different characters. And we have to have everything look the same and, and set in this real world. And, and they don't embrace the artificiality that comes with comic books. And that's kind of a bummer because we're kind of losing something there. Yeah, I mean, there are rare examples that are contrary to that. Yeah. Trying to think of of anything recent that really embraced that artificiality that you see in Caligari. Um, Speed Racer came to mind. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that was a live action movie that was deliberately trying to be a cartoon with that really, really deep depth of field. The sort of uh, cross-cutting and overlays, you know, it didn't matter because yeah. they knew that what they were attracted to about the source material is what they wanted to get across. And a, a, a speed racer movie that kind of played it straight and real is really boring and sort of misses the point. Yeah. Yeah, that's an unfortunate thing about a lot of modern special effects is that there is this kind of notion of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, but And we're always trying to get it to be as close to reality as possible. And I think that's a bummer, especially when we judge things based off, well, I... That's unbelievable. Well, of course it's unbelievable. It's Norse gods and and magic and all these other things. So mm-hmm. why can't we embrace that sometimes? Um, so And that's what I find refreshing about watching a lot of these older movies is that that sort of unreality is almost, it's just embraced more. Or, or musicals from the 30s and 40s where people would just break into song or something like um, an, an American in Paris, 
which is directed by Vincent Minnelli, where the whole last 20 minutes is just this extended ballet with all these artificial sets made to look sort of like Paris. And um, it's gorgeous. It's about production design um, and about people moving through these spaces. Um, And I miss stuff like that. Yeah, I, I get the feeling that, you know, more modern examples of things that don't have much of an interest in 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 playing in a grounded reality uh, tends to get relegated to camp. You know what I mean? And um, yeah, and I think I think some people use that word dismissively. Oh, totally. Yeah, which is unfortunate because um, there's nothing wrong with camp. Camp is great. Yeah, and we talked about that in the Prince episode. Um where we talked about Purple Rain and how a lot of it just felt so heightened mm-hmm. um, that he was myth-making. And I couldn't imagine like this real gritty version of Prince growing up in um, Minneapolis uh, without all that sort of excess. That's not who Prince is, you know? And that's what made that movie work. Um, but you get modern movies, uh, even like rock, the recent... Um, Elton John biopic Rocket Man, which still has to kind of ground things and like we're going to go into these flights of fancy, but it's all grounded in this kind of reality of what's happening to the character. So um, I want to see something that's a little more untethered. Yeah, I, I think there's um, sacrificing the freedom that film allows in the name of realism when it doesn't call for it is misguided sometimes. Certainly there's a balancing act. It doesn't apply to everything. But I certainly think that given the the sort of obsession with churning out these comic book movies, I think I think they could look to a Caligari for more inspiration than they, you know, probably are because that uh yeah, like you said, people are already buying the absurd premises of what define these characters. Yeah. Um leaning into the silliness or the absurdity um, and the sort of visual fun that comes with that, I think could could go a long way for them. Yeah. I think, so with Caligari too, and we've been talking about horror, so we can let's tie it all together with the horror genre. And I think that's the best example of playing with unreality, uh, for lack of a better term. In this movie, Caligari really influenced the early universal horror movies, especially Dracula. And the very first one with uh, Bela Lugosi has these great production design, uh, which borrows heavily from this long, narrow stairs, things that just don't feel like they're part of reality. And that heightens a lot of the horror. Um, And all of those early universal horror movies are, are pretty great. But it goes into a lot of... What Hitchcock did too, which is doing heightened things. Like he understood that it wasn't about making sure it was real. It was about being expressive. Um, Yeah, what is the mood of this scene? How can I show that visually and not just through what the actors are expressing or what they're saying? Yeah, and I think if you're watching a movie like Vertigo, for example, and you're like critiquing it based off of, you know, plots or or the specificities of the character's actions kind of misses the point of what he's trying to do. But then that kind of pushed the genre even more uh, with Giallo movies, which are all uh, you know, Italian 
horror movies. Uh, Giallo is named after like the paperbacks, these yellow paperbacks, uh, which usually featured a, a masked man with black gloves murdering people. But the movies themselves were all very expressive and used this form of lighting, which was, you know, not based in any form of reality. There's a lot of color in their movies, uh, and they're so expressive in how they depicted these murders. In movies like Suspiria um, and uh, Blood and Black Lace, where it's all this lighting that comes from, they're not coming from sources that feel within the room. Logic isn't necessarily the 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 goal here. Yeah. I, I, I think the term is it's unmotivated lighting. So it's all about heightening the moment. You know, you could point a lot of that influence back to this movie. And it's really startling to watch this and be like, wow, I see so much in this movie. That's a, almost 100 years old. Um, that's it's pretty exciting revelation um, to finally kind of check this one off. Yeah. So do you think... Um, do you think you does this make you more interested in in early horror stuff or in more silent films? Silent films for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I've never seen Nosferatu. Yeah. Um, I've never seen Metropolis. Yeah. I've seen the the anime reimagining of Metropolis from the early two thousands. I've never seen that. It's I remember it being really fun. There's a great, um, really sort of explosive climactic moment that is set almost in silence, but to um, a Ray Charles song, which really comes out of left field. But it, it really, like, it does lean into the sort of art deco, roaring 20s kind of aesthetic. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I would love to explore a bit more of the, the sort of, the, the films that were coming out in the wake of Caligari around the same time. Um, Buster Keaton's another one who I... I feel bad about not having watched any of his films yet. I think if you like the Chaplin movies, I think you'd like Buster Keaton. Mm -hmm. Um, It's in that same kind of milieu, but like he's obviously doing his own distinctive kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also uh, Harold Lloyd, um, who is another kind of comedic uh, persona Mm -hmm. uh, working in the same kind of veins. Uh, His, his movie safety Lass is, is relatively famous. um, And he pulls off some pretty impressive, um, Stunt work, but also there's some really interesting filmmaking where they're manipulating the camera and, mm-hmm. and kind of tricking you into believing that maybe he's in more danger than he actually is. Sure. Um, Chaplin did a lot of that too. Buster Keaton was actually probably in danger. <laughs> he, um, it's startling a lot of the things that he did. Um, and that would be a great future episode, I think, is to talk about um, Buster Keaton. Yeah. Um, I would recommend if you're interested in more um, early horror, um, definitely check out Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. It's really unsettling and um, it's just strange. With a lead performance that has to be seen to be believed because he's just a fucking weirdo. Um, but also Vampire um, is pretty terrific silent film. Another German film. Um, is that Vampire or the Y? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but a lot of this imagery in these early horror movies are very very expressive. It's all about mood and texture. And again, with the limitations of the technology at the time, um, it kind of gives it like a this really great quality that um, couldn't have happened now. You know, mm-hmm. it's that texture, and and again, that sort of the way the camera was ex- the the way the film was exposed, or what they were capable of at the time. I think is 
kind of lends well to to the mood of the piece. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, especially horror. Yeah. So do you have any recommendations for anyone that's interested in, you know, jumping down that Caligari rabbit hole? Uh, yeah, a couple of things came to mind pretty quickly. Um, one I'm I'm much more familiar with than the other. So I'll, I'll lead with with the recommendation that I've, I've only seen this movie once, and it's been a number of years, but... Um, have you ever seen The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T? I was going to recommend that too. Oh, great. Talk about it. What do you got? Oh, man. What a weird fucking movie. Yeah. It's from 1953. It's the first and only screenplay Dr. Seuss ever wrote. Yeah. Yep. Directed by Roy Rowland. Uh, and, and it's similar to Caligari in the sense that it has these... It's all artificial sets. Right. And I mean... Uh, the reason I, I thought of this is because looking at the village in Caligari, I was like, oh, we're in Whoville. Yeah. I mean, Dr. Seuss uses that that sort of, uh, it's less jagged. It's certainly more colorful, but a, yeah. a, a, a variation of that German expressionism in his illustrations. Yeah, it's it's a little more inviting. But, yeah. but there is this weird off quality to the 5,000 fingers of Dr. T. And it's about this young boy who is taking piano lessons from this, you know, dictatorial piano teacher. And he has these visions of this teacher that invents this piano that needs to be played by, um, is it 500 kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. The piano needs to be played at one time by 500 kids. So he puts all these kids into essential slave labor to play this piano yeah it's, it's really there's a lot of overlap it's it is a story within a story because it's framed by this the framing device is the kid who hates his piano teacher yeah. and then the weird part in the middle is all a dream mm-hmm. um yeah, the in the dream the the teacher is hypnotized his mother and is you know enslaving the kids he's kind of a deranged showman of a villain like caligari yeah his name is dr terwilliker <laughs> it's yeah. so wacky. It's very wacky. Yeah. And it's strange that maybe it's not strange because it's a weird movie. But I feel like it's a movie that a lot of people would enjoy now, especially like if you're in tune with things like Willy Wonka or Labyrinth or um, The Witches. And like these like these movies that are ostensibly for kids that are maybe a little darker edge. But this has some songs in it and um, and just some great production design. Yeah, I think it's, it's sort of... Um... You know the the cultural amnesia that seems to be around it is it's probably victim to coming out a little too early to be something that maybe our parents' generation were too familiar with. That's um, true. Probably wasn't something on TV a lot. It, I get the impression that it was kind of a dud when it came out. Yeah. So I think it's more of like a cult. Yeah, it's definitely a cult. Um, film. Yeah, like a curiosity now. Sure. Yeah, I think film fans maybe know about it a little bit more because it's so fucking weird. But it is the only movie written by Dr. Seuss. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're interested in seeing his writing and his art uh, rendered in real life, this is the movie to see. Yeah. yeah. The other recommendation is um, What's Opera Doc, which oh, is directed cool. by Chuck Jones. It's the, you know, the famous Bugs Bunny short play off of um, Wagner, where uh, Elmer Fudd is the, the, the sort of... Uh, yeah, he's got the the magic Viking helmet and the spear. It's got that great scene where where Bugs in drag is uh, Broomhilda on that ridiculously obese white horse. Um, but uh, I I point to that one because of the obvious German influences. But specifically, in a lot of animation, and, and Chuck Jones plays a lot with this in particular. The backgrounds are very abstract in a way that's very evocative of German expressionism, and it's something I was always attracted to as a kid. 
And you got this more in Warner Brothers cartoons and with Disney cartoons where the backgrounds sometimes would be these just abstractions and these blobs of color and, you know, the, the sort of loose outline of things to like, do they just give you enough to know what the shapes are supposed to be? And yeah, it's really powerful, especially in something like this, where they're playing around with opera and the emotions are so intense and so over the top. How about you? What are your recommendations? Yeah. So, um, Aside from 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T and obviously Nosferatu and the early um, Universal horror movies, I wanted to recommend uh, The Mask of the Red Death. Uh, And this is a Roger Corman movie, and we've talked about him on the show, uh, but this is one of the movies that he's directed, and this is an Edgar Allan Poe adaptation starring Vincent Price. Uh, and it's pretty terrific. It has like those kind of artificial sets and a lot of use of red and red cloaks and red backgrounds and red lighting. And I really gravitate towards a lot of these horror movies from the, you know, the 60s and the 70s where there's like this heightened sense of artificiality, whether it's the Hammer horror films or the aforementioned Giallo movies, um, primarily um, Argento and, and Mario Bava and Fulci. So, but this one is a lot of fun and it's got a great Vincent Price uh, performance. I'm a big fan of him. And obviously we've already talked about him in relation to Tim Burton. So all these things are connected. So just seek it all out and it's all great. It's all worth watching. Great. What are we talking about next time? Next time we're going to talk about Veronica Mars. Oh boy. Yeah. So I've never seen any of it. I've seen all of it. The new season was recently released. We're just going to talk about the pilot. We're not going to try to bite off more than we can chew this time around. We've we've sort of uh, <laughs> learned some lessons from yeah. previous episodes. I think the pilot is meaty enough um, to really get into. And if hopefully the goal is that you enjoy it enough that you'll want to keep going. Because I do think it's a show that knowing your interest that you, you're going to enjoy it. Um, we're excited to talk about it in November because, you know, there's that term that gets kind of thrown around, noir vember, and this is, you know... Is that an actual term, or did we make that up? We didn't make it up. I think people use it in the context of recommending things. Oh, okay. Um, at least online, I've seen it used. Um, oh, great. Um, yeah, uh, but, you know, we love noir here on the show, and it's it's great to maybe finally start talking about it, even if it's a more recent version of the genre. Um, but, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, so that uh, that does it for our horror month. We're going to yeah. be going back to our bi-weekly releases. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, let us know if there's any horror blind spots that uh, maybe you got to this Halloween. That'd be great to hear from you. Thank you for listening to What Did We Miss? You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can also find us on social media at What Did We Miss? And you can drop us a line at whatdidwemisspod at gmail.com. And as always, thank you to the What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence. And if you want to learn more about them, look them up on social media at What Cheer Club and on their website at whatcheerclub.org.